And we're going to be reading today from Philippians chapter 3. So if you uh, maybe need a recap after we had a guest speaker, uh, Christopher Appel, with us last week, or maybe you're here for the first time today uh, just to catch you up to speed. As we've read through the first two chapters of Philippians together in the past weeks, we've been encouraged by the Apostle Paul to keep pressing on in the faith even in the face of intense persecution or, as has come out in our worship time, intense difficulty and challenging situations. We've been reminded of the incredible hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, an eternal hope, a hope that goes beyond this lifetime and these present circumstances. We've been reminded of the fact that when you become a Christian, you become a citizen of heaven. Your identity changes, your allegiance changes, you get new values, new priorities. No longer primarily informed by this world, but actually informed by King Jesus, informed by what we find in Scripture, first and foremost. We've been encouraged to love and serve one another, to to put others first before our own interests, to love and serve others even when it's not convenient, comfortable, or easy in response to the incredible selfless love of Jesus Christ to us, that that we're called as Christians to love as we've been loved by our Savior. And today we're going to continue, and as we read chapter 3, I hope you'll see that actually we get an incredible reminder in these verses of the good news message that's at the heart of the Christian faith. The good news that gives reason and motivation for us to to want to live in obedience to God. Reason and motivation for us to want to live in a way that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father. And so, um, instead of read the whole chapter up front, we are going to go through the whole of chapter 3 together. We're going to go through uh, kind of section by section and we'll pause and talk about it and unpack as we go. Uh, So I want to pray, and then we're going to begin from chapter 3, verse 1. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you spoke. (laughs) Lord, we thank you that you continue to speak. Lord, but the the most, (laughs) like, bulletproof way that we have of being sure that we hear your voice is by opening your word to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray Spirit, would you help us to see clearly this afternoon? Would you give us ears to hear what you would speak to us? Would you give us hearts receptive to your word this afternoon? Lord, that it would take root and bear fruit in our lives for your glory and for the good of those around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Well, Paul begins... Chapter 3, with these words, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, you might think, well, hang on, if you've thumbed ahead, you'll realize we're only about halfway through. You're like, finally? <laughs> What's going on? Well, it could be read or rendered furthermore. So it's in continuation of what I have been saying to you, furthermore, or so then, as in, in the light of what I have just been saying, finally, or furthermore, or so then, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul's 
continuing the theme of what he's just been talking about. He's picking back up uh, actually what he was speaking about in chapter 2, verse 17 onwards, about rejoicing in the Lord. And if you remember from when we read 2.17, he says, Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Essentially, Paul is writing in those verses, even if I might die here in prison, I'm giving my life for the glory of God. Serving you and serving other Christians, proclaiming the good news of Jesus so that you'd grow in your faith. And that's a huge privilege. So I'm glad and I rejoice that God is going to use me in that way. That's, that's the note of what Paul's saying. And then he turns it on them and says, basically, and so should you. You should rejoice. If God would use you, which he will, for his glory to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to those around you. And then Paul continues in the rest of chapter 2 to give two examples of men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who are men worthy of imitating for their relationship in God. Men who, who like Paul, rejoice to do the will of God. Men who are willing to suffer for the sake of others, just like Jesus did, and to consider it joy to do so. And after talking about those men and their great example, Paul says, so rejoice. <laughs> rejoice. And then he continues in that same thread, that same thought, that same sentence. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. This is interesting. The same things here is not necessarily things he has said in this letter. But Paul is saying, guys... I, I'm, I would have said this to you before, you're going to have heard this before, and I don't mind repeating myself. I, I don't mind repeating myself. It's no bother to me. I don't mind being like a, kind of beating the same drum over and over again. Elsewhere in his writing, Paul says, I've got one message. I've got resolved to know nothing else but Christ and Christ crucified. He's like, I'm just going to keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. And here he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Guys, there are some things we need to hear over and over and over again for our good, for our preservation. And that's what Paul's going to write about. Because in fact, what he goes on to say isn't a repetition of anything else in this letter, but it's certainly contained in his other writings to other church, and it's likely something that he spoke to the Philippian Christians about at the outset when they first began to gather as a Christian community. And Paul doesn't mind repeating himself if it will benefit them. If it will serve as a warning that will help them to persevere in the Christian life, then it's no trouble to repeat it again and again and again. And I've had people say to me before, like, Owen, you, you preach the gospel, like, pretty well every week. It's like again and again. And I think I'm in good company with the Apostle Paul. It's for your good. We need to hear it. A, a friend of mine who leads a church in South Africa, uh, says, we have gospel amnesia. 
We're forgetful people. We quickly forget the good news of Jesus. And so we need to be reminded again and again and again. And so this is what Paul writes to them. And he's going to use some unusual phrases, but we'll pick our way through them as we go. He says this, look out for the dogs. You think, oh, hang on. <laughs> look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is really strong language. We need to understand what's going on here. There were Jewish people who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They believed that he was the Messiah, the rescuer from heaven. But they believed that in order for any non-Jew to accept the Messiah, they needed to essentially become a Jew first. To be right with God, these people would argue, required more than faith in Christ alone. Actually, they needed to live according to the requirements of the Jewish law and customs, including circumcision. When he talks about those mutilators of the flesh, he's talking about people who would demand that people needed to be circumcised in order to come to God, not simply put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, but there was more they must do. They must also be circumcised. They must also live in accordance with the Jewish laws and customs, making Christianity a kind of Judaism plus, if you will. And that isn't why Jesus came. It wasn't the message he proclaimed, and it certainly isn't how we're to be made right with God. In fact, the Bible's clear, actually. The law itself did not exist to make people right with God. It was powerless to accomplish that. It existed to help us see our need for a savior. See, the, the, we stood condemned under the law. It helped us see, like, I, I can't. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't possibly fulfill all of those requirements perfectly. I, I can't. I need one who would stand on my behalf, who can do it perfectly. I need a champion. I need a savior. I need a rescuer. Sacrifices and the sacrificial system never truly paid for people's sins. It was never intended to. They were a sign, a symbol, a very visual, graphic, gory way of helping people understand the seriousness of their sin. That the penalty for sin was death. That blood needed to be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. Sins were never truly dealt with or paid for by any sacrifice until the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We, we can read in Romans chapter 3, Paul writing to the church at Rome about this exact subject. He says this, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So how is this sacrifice received for us? How is it credited to us? How is it effective in our lives? By faith in Jesus. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance or in his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In other words, 
the, the sacrifices were a picture of what would ultimately happen at Calvary when Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf, when he gave himself up willingly, stood in our place, took the death that we deserved. Paul addresses this in a number of his other letters and writings too, and and here, though not at length, he addresses the subject strongly. He's saying that anyone, we're to watch out for anyone who professes that there is a different way to be made right with God than through repentance and faith alone in Christ alone. And to proclaim anything else is a false gospel. And anyone who does so is an evildoer. That's the words Paul uses. He's very strong. Why evildoers? Evildoers because they're loading people up with a burden that they can't bear. And all for nothing because it won't actually make them right with God. See, to believe that there is anything you can do in order to earn God's forgiveness is just loading a burden that is too heavy for you to bear and won't accomplish anything anyway. Because the only way is through the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Paul calls the people who would do that and who were saying that to the church at Philippi and in other places at the time, he calls them dogs. And you think, that's a, like, it's just like a really, like to our 21st century Western mind, it's like, that's a really weird and harsh thing to say. It's like, what are you saying, Paul? Well, Jews would look down culturally on the non-Jews, on Gentiles, and they would call them dogs as a term of scorn. As a way of saying those people are outside of God's covenant. They are outside of God's promised people. And Paul then says to the church at Philippi and other places, if you try to add anything to Jesus as a way to be made right with God, then you place yourself outside of God's covenant people. You yourself become a dog. That's why he uses that language. That's what he's saying. He's saying the only way to be included in God's covenant, to be accepted by God, is through faith alone in Christ alone. And and to do anything else, to believe anything else, to, to attempt anything else, apart from that, is to put yourself outside of God's covenant people. And that's why he uses this phrase, a dog. It's, it's language they would understand. Those who put no confidence in their own ability, but trust in Christ alone to save them, and are born again by the Spirit of God, they are the true people of God. That's what Paul writes here when he says, the true circumcision... Yeah? Look out for those dogs, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The only way to be made right with God is to put all your confidence, all your hope, not in your ability, but in Jesus Christ. And yet all of us, I guarantee every single person in this room will slip into believing at times that we need to or indeed that we could earn God's favor through our impressive behavior. (laughs) Like 
we like to think we can be good enough. We talked about this around the dinner table the other day with our children. And when we begin to think that, guys, we set the bar way too low. Like, <laughs> like laughably low if we think that we do that. And we do it by comparing ourselves with others who are also not holy as God is holy. And we think, well, if we maybe in that area of our lives, I'm a bit better than that person, then I, I probably am. I'm probably good enough. I, I think God would probably accept me. Like I, I've generally lived a good life. Pretty good. Well, I might not be perfect, but I wouldn't do that. They, they did. I don't know if you saw them. They did that. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but the truth is, the bar is way higher than you could possibly imagine. Absolute, spotless perfection. And not perfection by your standard as you can conceive it, but perfection by the standard of a holy God who is utterly without parallel. There is no one like him. None of us comes even close. And, and Paul goes on to spell that out. We read again from verse 4. It says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh. So guys, if any of you today thinks you're smashing it out of the park, this is, this is for you. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's like, Paul says, I'm better than you guys. Why? And he goes on to mark out his credentials as like a Jew of Jews. He's born or circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is like, if you could actually be made right with, right with God by fulfilling the law, I've done it. It's, it's, it's like, if it were humanly possible. He's a Jew of Jews. He was born into the right tribe, the right family. He had the right education. He understood the law inside and out, and he applied it. But the point is, it isn't possible Although Paul is most definitely better than me, and most definitely better than you, I don't, don't want to upset you, but, but he was. He knows he's not good enough to earn God's favor. Like he knows it. He's quick to point out that his physical circumcision, his religious observance, his heritage, his understanding and ability to teach the Jewish law that in spite of all of that, his Jewishness and his own moral performance is not where his hope rests. We go on from verse 7. Having spelled out his credentials, Paul says, but, and it's one of those really important buts in the Bible. There's loads of them. And the more you read the New Testament, you find them. They're the magnificent turning points. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. For Paul, as it should be for all Christians, the greatest joy is knowing Jesus. Compared with that, I consider everything lost. All of it, whatever else would be credited to me, whatever else could be said of me, I consider it lost, I consider it worthless compared to knowing Jesus, compared to what I have in him. The greatest joy as a Christian is knowing that you're right before God and right before God, not on the back of your most determined efforts or attributes, but by the free grace gift of God in Christ Jesus. It's the most incredible, freeing, joy-bringing reality that you could ever know. That your acceptance is not built on the back of your moral accomplishments, but it's built on the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. Righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And this wonder of grace, this joy of new life in him compels us, doesn't it? When we remember what he's done for us, when we delight ourselves in his grace towards us, compels us to want to live for him, compels us to want to know him more and to honor him with our lives. And that's exactly where Paul goes from here in verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He wants to be united with Christ in all things, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Like he knows he's a work in progress, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lays behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul is looking forward to eternity with Christ. He's longing for the day when he will be with him in glory, when he will know him fully as he's fully known by him, when he will be like him. And he says, I, I, I know I'm not there yet. My righteousness has been secured by his work. I've not obtained it for myself, but I'm going to press on to be like him, to know him more. Paul's a Christian, clearly. I'm like, Paul is a Christian, and he writes to them, though, that I may know him. Or in some translations, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That word know is an intimate word. It means to personally experience. It's a word of intimacy, to to draw close. Paul's saying, I'm saved, I know him, but I want to know him. I want to draw close. I want to experience 
intimacy in my relationship with God. I want to know Jesus more and more and more. I want to live in the good of the relationship that he's opened up for me through his work at Calvary and the power of his resurrection. Becoming like him. And Paul continues, not that I'm the finished article. He says, says this, doesn't he? Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Like, guys, I'm going to make mistakes. I continue to wrestle. But I keep going. Daily walking with God. Daily pursuing him. Daily longing to know him more. Daily seeking to become more and more like Jesus. Pressing on. Straining toward the goal. This, this, this is language of discipline. It's not like a just kind of lay back and let it happen to me. He's applying himself. He's determined. I want to know him more. I want to lean in and give myself to, to intimacy with my Savior, to investing in my relationship with him. I long to know him more, to become more like him. I'm pressing on. I'm straining towards that goal, working hard at it not just expecting it to somehow kind of magically happen to him, but pressing in. This was Paul's aim. And if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you, it should be your aim too. That's why we have these pursuits as a church community. This is actually heavily based on these verses, that we might know Jesus, not just have a a kind of academic head knowledge of someone who lived 2,000 years ago, but that we might know him as our risen Lord and Savior, as Paul seeks to know him, that we might grow like him. We we press on toward that goal and that we might go with him for the glory of God. And Paul's view is that this wasn't just His aim, but that should be the aim of all Christians. We read on from verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. He's like, like, join me in this pursuit. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Like, guys, you're kidding yourself if you think there's another way to be made right with God. We've covered that. And now Paul effectively says, you're kidding yourselves if you think you're already in every way perfect as a Christian. Like, Paul's really open. He's like, not that I've already attained it. Like, I'm not perfect. (laughs) But I'm longing to know him more and be like him. Remember, Paul was the one who was happy to say in his writings, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And yet here he says, I haven't already attained it. I'm not there yet. There's growth and learning still for me. If the Apostle Paul could say that, guys, I can assure you there's growth and learning still for each one of us. He says all mature Christians should have that mindset. If you don't, then you're crazy. You're kidding yourselves. You're not perfect. And you won't be until Christ returns. But don't use that as an excuse for laziness and sin. 
Paul won't use it as an excuse for sin. Is that I, I strain towards that goal. I, 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 I'm working. I'm longing to be more like him. As, as he works in me by his spirit, I want to I be an eager participant in that process. I want to pursue him and know him more. It's a curious phrase he uses. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Or in some verses, live up to what we have attained. In some translations. Wow. Live up to what we've attained. Elsewhere, Paul phrases it like this. He talks about living in accordance with. What have you attained if you're a Christian? New life. New life in Christ Jesus. New life not by your good works. Paul's already covered this ground in these verses. Not by your good works, but by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And living up to that means living a life of longing to know him more. And to grow more in his likeness. To honor him daily, longing to experience Christ and his resurrection power in your life. My experience has been that the longer I walk with Christ, the the longer I live as a Christian, the more and more I realize I'm not a lot like Jesus yet. Like the, the more I know him, the more I walk with him, the more I realize, oh, I, Lord, I, I'm not like you. I wish I were. I wish I were more like you. Lord, would you help me by your spirit to live for your glory today? I've got a long way to go. I'm very aware of that fact. I'm very aware of that fact. I can look back and see I've grown by the grace of God. And I know Paul could too. God has changed me and is changing me. But I also realize I've got a long way to go to be truly Christ-like. And so I want to join with Paul and press on towards that goal. Give myself to knowing him and the power of his resurrection. I press on. Longing to honor him with all that I am. And I want to encourage you to do the same. And Paul continues in these verses with some some brilliant advice for us as we seek to do that. It's one of the most helpful things we can do is to find godly examples who will help us to grow in Christ-likeness. He will strengthen, encourage us, and spur us on in our faith. He will help us see what it looks like to live for Jesus. Paul continues from verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. Again, he's just said, like, I'm not perfect, but I'm straining towards the goal. Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words... When we were with you at Philippi and we proclaimed the gospel to you, which we, I don't know if you remember the start of this series, we looked at that in Acts 16, you, you will have seen the way we lived for the glory of God and the good of others. You would have seen the way we lived, longing to know Christ and make him known. 
people who have picked that up and are also seeking to live in that way, keep your eyes on them. Observe their way of life. Imitate them. <laughs> Let them do you good. Find humble, servant-hearted, godly examples and let them encourage, challenge, and inspire you to live for Christ. Guys, we need to hear this. We all need people to look up to and imitate in the faith. And I'm so grateful for, for those who I've had the privilege of walking alongside and who I have the privilege of looking to in that way. There are people in this room who I'm so grateful that God has placed alongside me for the godly example there are to me. You know, I've talked about it a couple of times recently. I'm grateful for Chris and Julie who joined us recently. Who are, like They're out serving our youth today. Like, like in most contexts, a retired couple, people think, oh, they put their feet up, like just kind of buy still waters. We joke with Dave often about, you're retired, aren't you, Dave? You just like buy... By still waters. <laughs> and yet he's continuing full pelt to live for the glory of God and the good of others. He's living in, in pursuit of these things, and I'm grateful that he is. I'm grateful for Chris and Julie who are out serving our youth today and talking to them about this. I, I, when I wrote this, I didn't, it was quite last minute. My parents coming to see us this weekend. When I wrote this, I didn't know they were going to be here, but I'm, I'm grateful to God. A godly example who I can look to and who spurred me on in the faith. Are they perfect? No. They're not. But just as Paul was able to say, I'm pressing on towards the goal. I've observed it in their life. And I still observe it today and I'm grateful for that example that they've been to me. You need to find people who you can look to, who will encourage you in that way. Do you know who they are for you? Do, do, do you know who they are? People whose lives are worth imitating. Do you know what you're looking for? It's important to know what you're looking for. Not just nice people or successful people, <laughs> but people who live like Jesus who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, whose lives are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. People who submit themselves to living in obedience to God's Word and who live to glorify God and bless others. When you find them, get around them. Share your life with them. <laughs> Like, spend as much time as you can with them. You're not going to see enough of them in two hours on a Sunday. You're not. Particularly if I talk for a full hour of it. Invite them into your home. Invite yourself into their home. Ask them to speak into your life. Give them free reign to challenge you where they see areas for growth. It's painful, but it's so worth it. You can't do it on your own. Paul gives us a warning as well about, do you know who you're looking for, who you're looking at, who you're seeking to imitate? We read on from verse 18. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. It's not difficult to find people who are ruled by their appetites. When Paul says their God is their belly, it's like their, their appetites, their desires rule them. It's not hard to find examples of people who are ruled by their desires, is it? Ruled by their appetites, people who are living to please themselves. Tragically, bad examples for the Philippians and bad examples for us today are not in short supply. It's not hard to find people who are successful by the world's standards to imitate, look up to, to want to be like, to emulate. Maybe it's in your career, someone who's further on than you. Celebrity culture is a huge thing, right? Sporting heroes. Whatever it is for you, we surrounded by people whose lives look impressive by the world's standards. Successful people. Bad examples are not in short supply. You need to know what you're looking for. Whose lives are you trying to emulate? And Paul continues on effectively with a, don't look to them. <laughs> There's lots of bad examples out there. Keep your eyes off them. Keep your eyes on good examples. Because he continues to remind us our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In other words, we're eagerly awaiting Jesus' return. We're citizens of heaven. We know where we belong, where our home is. And when he does return to make all things new, our champion, our true hero, will be made perfect like him. The goal to which we press on, the great aim of becoming like Jesus, will be completed once and for all. He will finish the work that he has begun in you at the point you repented and put your trust in him. And with that great and glorious hope before us, we press on. Yeah? I want to ask you to consider briefly what does pressing on towards that goal look like for you this week? What's it going to look like tomorrow morning when you get up and prepare to head into the day to press on towards that goal? What will it look like for you to join with Paul in saying, I, I long to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, to be made like him, to join him? I guess I want to just ask as well for us to consider, given the strength of Paul's warning in this passage, have you begun to believe that you can earn or that you need to earn your standing before God? 
think, in subtle ways. Like I said earlier, we have gospel amnesia. We're quick to begin to pick up the belief that we, we need to do it. We need to carry it. Or, or even that we have. <laughs> like that we're that good. <laughs> like we're just that good. Like of course God loves us. Like why wouldn't he? Like I'm that good. We need to remember again what Christ has done for us. It's his finished work. We're going to come to the table and share communion in just a moment. Dave's going to lead us. But I want to pray for us first before we do that.